Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, before we start the sermon this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Um, oh, what'd you say? Oh, fire. Yeah. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to put a couple minutes. I'm going to do a little timer. You're going to actually talk around your table. And those of you in the back, you're one group, including you, Abby. I know they isolated you for some reason. This is messed up. But, Abby, I say you're allowed in that group. Um, but yeah, if you're not in a group, at least just congregate with some people around you. We are going to discuss what you think the mission of the church is. What's the purpose of the church? So, take a few minutes, discuss it, try and get it down to like a tweet-worthy statement, like 140 characters, not the, not the new 280-something. No, we're going short, condensed, what, is, what do you think the mission of the church is? Discuss amongst yourself. Let's go. All right, let's begin. Well, I will ask for some answers in just a moment, but let me set the stage for us. Uh, and just to remind you guys, if there are any, if you have any questions, we will have a time of question and response at the end. So write them down, or you can text them in. Anthony, you should put this number up on the screen. You are welcome to text in. Uh, I encourage you for that to be the only use of your phone in the service um, if you are texting in. Other than that, let's be here. All right. So, what is the mission of the church? Last week, we sought to uh, highlight and answer the question, what, ex what actually is the church? So, we mainly looked at Acts 2.42, right? And we saw four components that stood out there. Four elements that defined and distinguished the early church from other faith traditions or people groups throughout human history. Luke recorded that after believing the good news of the kingdom, having come through Jesus' death and resurrection, he said in verse 242, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and the prayers. So from this verse, we said that the early church was four things. Can anyone, anyone remember them? Ooh, don't put it up. Don't do it. Can anyone remember the four things? Don't, don't look, don't look, don't look. What is it? That's what the church is, the apostles' teaching? Yeah, yeah. So what does that make them, though? <laughs> what did we say that meant about what characterized the church. You, you quoted the passage. Good. What did he say? Okay. We just kind of applied it. So we said the church is a learning community, a fellowshipping community, a feasting community, and a praying community. So you quoted the passage correctly, yes, but we went and applied, okay, let these characteristics describe what makes them the church, what distinguishes them. So... We asked this morning, what is the mission of the church? What's our purpose? 
why did God bring us together here in LifeBridge Community Church? Why does he do this all over the world in many different neighborhoods and cities and cultures? Uh, and he's been doing this for a couple millennia. Why does he do this? Well, a few weeks after Jesus resurrected from the dead and spent time teaching his uh, apprentices at the time, Matthew or Levi recorded Jesus' parting words to them. Well, as so, he said, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. And Luke recorded the same event with similar words that are a little different. He said, Jesus is saying, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, we want to ask this question. I'm going to open it up for uh, your guys' answers that you uh, crafted together. What is the mission of the church? Both for the church Catholic or global, or as a whole, and then even here, and all throughout the face of the earth, the individual local churches that can be 10 people or 10,000 people. What, what is our mission? So, maybe tables, I should have said this, appoint someone, table groups, who is going to share? Go ahead and raise your hand if you want to share. If not, I'm going to call on tables. Eli, you're going first? Yes. Go, go for it. Go for it. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. Okay. 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 I'm going to need it to be a little tighter. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, that was great. That was great. All right. Other tables. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. Image him. Yes. Okay. Be the hands of, or say it again. I'm sorry. Bring the good news of Jesus and make disciples. Okay. Provide a safe place for community. Bring the gospel. Make disciples. Provide a safe place for community. Okay. Other groups. Anyone have different things? Melissa. Spread love, serve others, teach us how to live as Jesus did? Okay. Reuben. Follow the teachings of Jesus in order to strengthen each other and reach out to the unsaved? Okay. Anyone else want to share? Let's go on this side of the room. Yeah, Susanna. His what? I think they're similar. I, I, yeah, yeah, semantics. To worship. Kingdom building. Fellowship. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, she had, wow. Guys, she had points. Do we need time to reorient our answers or follow her outline? I'm joking. Uh, let's go with this table back here. I want to hear from you guys. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. We hear this, grow and sustain disciples and spread the gospel. Okay. Anyone else feel the desire to... Let's go with you guys. Sh did you say shoot? Or sure? Oh, <laughs> You're like, oh shoot. Okay. Advance the kingdom, create community here, reach out to the community. These are great. Good job, guys. I like this. Um, no, it's helpful to hear how we all see and, and perceive what the mission of the church is. We're going to focus in light on these Great Commission passages and then look at Jesus' words there in your bulletin. We're predominantly focusing on Matthew 5, um, 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Those will be our uh, verses that we will predominantly look at. But so if, if, and I concur, a lot of what we said here, kind of there's synonyms or synonymous statements that overlap. And yes, we said a lot of good and similar things. And so uh, the main things we heard were disciple making, spreading the gospel, forming community, uh, and reaching out to those outside of our church. Well, how do we actually do that? Well, the opening words of Article 10, which is the article we're topically discussing this morning, say this, and this is in your bulletin as well. It says, we believe that the church is called to proclaim and to be a sign of the kingdom of God. Christ has commissioned the church to be his witnesses, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe all things he has commanded. Um, it should be the next slide. Oh, sorry. I totally skipped all these, Anthony. Two more? There we go. That's our statement. So, back in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, Levi records a lengthy version of what some have called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to set the scene for us, uh, one commentator that I'll, I'll reference a bit, his name's R.T. France. He summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, the focus of these chapters is not the wider proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, but instruction of those who have already responded to that proclamation and now need to learn what life in the kingdom of heaven is really about. Essentially, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, it's for Jesus' followers. Once we've seen who Jesus is, and we've decided to believe in and follow him, this is the ethics that we're wrapped into. We're, we're invited to see the character of God in these teachings. He goes on, he says, The teaching will frequently describe them as a special group who stand over against and indeed are persecuted by people in general. They are those who have entered into a new relationship with, quote, your Father in heaven. It's important to note, too, this is the first time Jesus refers to God as your Father in heaven. He goes on, and who, in consequence, are called to a radically new lifestyle, in conscious distinction from the norms of the rest of society. They are to be an alternative society. So, after what's known as the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his apprentice, his apprentices, our passage this morning. Let's read in Matthew 5, 13. 
He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. He continues, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in looking at Jesus' words here, I see three proper nouns um, or analogies that Jesus uses to describe his people. Salt, light, a city. So we're going to walk through a little bit of what those analogies mean for us. But to preface, a couple notes from uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. He's the main commentator I, I read this week. He says this first note is when, when Jesus is saying you, you are the light of the world, it is not you individually. This is a loaded plural word that just doesn't translate for us. He's referring to the people of God as a whole, as we discussed last week, that the church, it's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. Jesus died for all of us together. So you is you all are the light of the world. You all, you folks. Perhaps the Southerners get it right when they say y'all. Um, that that kind of, that's what we're hearing here with Jesus. Bruner writes, it is Christian communities that are Jesus' greatest missionary means. The second thing to note as we walk through this passage, uh, he points out that Jesus says you folks are. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you will be. He doesn't say you might be. No, it's an active, like present, right now, in this moment. You are the light of the world. You currently are that. You currently are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. And lastly, Bruner points out that it would be acceptable for us to include the word very. Again, it doesn't translate well for us, but essentially you are the very light of the world. You are the very salt of the earth, meaning you are not one of many salts of the earth. No, you are literally the one salt of the earth, the light of the world. There aren't a bunch of lights. It's not like, there's all the lamps of all the different religions and worldviews. No, no, no. He's saying there's one way. There's one thing. You are the people that I am working through. This is Jesus alluding to the reality that there's one way to be restored as humanity. So, for us, as we walk to, through the passage, consider where they are when Jesus is saying these things. Small town, Jewish people, they live in a small village in the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful nations in human history. These people are a small sect of Judaism. They're socially viewed as subservient to the people around them. And even more so, there's women and children and possibly even slaves in this gathering who are all seen as less than men and some as less than even human. And Jesus is speaking to them, saying these truths to them. He's speaking over them. He's changing the scene for them. He's giving them a new role in the play of humanity, of human history. This, again, hits on the already not yet framework that we've touched on quite a bit over the last year. That we're already saved, but we're being saved. 
We're already in Christ, but we're becoming in Christ. This is this Christian ethic of, quote, becoming who we are or what we are. We already are this, and we are still becoming it, yes? This is radically different, uh, not only to the hearers then, but all cultures. Most worldviews, this doesn't work with. This, this challenges it. We're called to become what we should be, aspire to it, check the boxes, meet the list of demands, and if we don't, you're out, you're fired, you're done, you're canceled, whatever it may be. For you grammar heads uh, amongst the, the crowd, briefly, Bruner notes that this is an indicative, then an imperative, an evangel, then an ethic. It's a good news, then a response. This is a blessing, and then a set of commands. What other identity or vocation is like this? And so we walk through. Jesus tells them that they are already salt, light, and a city. What does this mean for us? Let's start with salt to the earth. What does salt do? It preserves, it flavors, uh, it seasons, it purifies, it's, it's distinct, it's other. There's a lot of seasonings. Some of them, if, if you don't have the best palate like me, some of them can overlap. But salt is kind of distinct, distinctive on its own. It has its own flavor that uh, you can right away tell if um, the Amish buffet you went to doesn't salt their food. Um, sorry, there's like four people that are, think that's funny. Um, other people, I'm sorry to insult. Um, but I just want some more salt in my food. Um, <laughs> no, or, uh, well, I'll keep going. Anyways, the analogy goes that as salt is for food, so the disciples are for the world. We are to be a means of seasoning. We're to be a means of bringing flavor, be a means of bringing preservation and purification for the earth. Are we the ones who are actually doing it? No, we are the vessels through which God is working to bring preservation, to bring redemption, purification, and so forth, to bring a different taste as Bruder noted, our power as the church in the world lies in our being different from it. He goes on, he says, salt does not exist for itself. Christians should not exist for themselves. Salt's main mission is penetrating food. Christians' main mission is penetrating the earth. Salt a centimeter away from food is useless. So too, Christians not living for people outside themselves are worthless. No one eats salt on their own. Salt is meant to complement another ingredient. It's meant to flavor something else. It's meant to bring the life out of something else. So too are we. It's not about us. It's not about our individual saltism. No, we are meant to highlight and bring out the God flavors in all of creation, in particular those around us. The challenge for us then is not to become salty, but instead, the challenge is for us to simply be who we are in Jesus. So it's not like we need to work our way to be salty. No, God has made you salty. Uh, he's made us salt and so forth. But this will continue on in the, further, uh, in the forthcoming analogy. So what's, what's the next analogy? The light of the world. In Matthew 4.16... Uh, Jesus has just been declared as the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 9, that he is the light that has dawned. And now he, a, a chapter later, is passing it to his apprentices. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we are now the sun of the solar system. Bruner uses this illustration that, no, like the moon uh, reflects the light of the sun to the earth, so are we. We are that vessel. The moon doesn't have the light in itself. The moon is only as bright as it reflects the sun. And that's what the Christian is. That's what the light of the world means for the Christian. That's the illustration for us. This is how the church is the light of the world. To the extent that we reflect Jesus is how the light shines in and through us to those around us. But notice, there's a promise here. There's a promise us for here who are in Jesus. That our light cannot be hidden. This means that if you're in Christ, God will use you. God will use you, and therefore you have value. You have purpose. Your life is not empty or vanity. God will use you. How exciting is this? How thrilling is this? Especially in a world where we're often just like, man, what am I doing with my life? Where sometimes we can go through the day-to-day, week-to-week, year on, year on, and we're 10 years into a career, 20 years into a career, 15 years into a relationship, and we're like, what am I doing? How did we get here? No, God will use you. There is a promise here that our lives are not intended to be dull and a chasing after the wind, but to be purposeful, to be meaningful, to be impactful. And our purpose, our meaning, our impact are not, may not look as stellar as we had hoped. It may not look as exciting and bright lights and, and so forth, but perhaps we're viewing the significance of what God is doing through our own eyes rather than through the eyes of Jesus. We can struggle to see the beauty in the routine, feel the thrill in the mundane, experience the extraordinary in the ordinary. But be assured, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, God will and is using you. Your life matters. Your life matters. For me, this combats my doubts. This combats, yeah, whether or not I feel like I'm doing what I'm called to do, whether or not I'm doing it well, whether I'm not... I made wrong decisions in life, small or big, right? And perhaps, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not alone. For some of us, it could paralyze us to make big life decisions or changes, too, because we're like, if I make that decision, oh my gosh, what if I make the wrong decision? No, be assured, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, your life matters. This combats the anxieties that we face as to whether or not God will use us wherever we're at and whether or not God is pleased with us and how we are living our lives. Instead, we can be assured that God won't ignite a light in vain. And this is where Bruner sums, sums it up. He says, the purpose of our lives is to remove the veil from the Father's face and to display something of God's glory to the world. It should no longer be necessary to ask the purpose of life. The purpose of life is the glory of God. That's why Jesus says at the end there, they will see your good deeds and they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. And this is even more clear when you read literally the very next verse in chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus starts warning his disciples right after saying this, that you're going to do all these good deeds and, and people will give glory to your Father in heaven. And then what does he say? Don't let your right hand know what your left hand does. Don't brag about what you do and what you give and, and, and all the, the crazy stuff you do in your life. Don't make it about you, essentially is what he's saying. 
that when people see your good deeds, it's not about you, but about Christ in you. Don't boast, but point to Jesus. What's the last illustration he uses, the last analogy? A city on a hill. It's, uh, it's sprinkled between light, but he says we're to be a city set on a hill. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of the word city? What images do you picture? Perhaps we all have different understandings or views of what a city is. Um, perhaps it's overpopulation, right? Uh, for some. <laughs> do you picture brokenness? The affluence? The expensive cost of living? The culture? In the ancient world, cities were a safe haven, a refuge, a place of protection. In a lot of ways, that's why cities, even to this day, can become heavily populated with the houseless community, right? Because there's a lot of resources there, and so odds are you're, you're just, it's just simple economics. More people passing you by, more chances you get of people funding you. Or there might be more organizations and more help in those areas. There also might be literal warmth from the buildings in cold seasons because it's blocking you from cold or you can hide under, yeah, shelters and so forth. But by extension of the wealth and affluence of its citizens, this city, the city can provide at least something for those who are unable to provide for themselves. And in the ancient world, if you lived outside the city gates, you were at risk. If you were thrown outside the city gates, it meant you were casted out, you were exiled, you were seen as not worthy of the emperor, the crown, and so forth. Personally, when I picture the city, uh, I see the lights, I, um, I see the skyscrapers towering over the people. I see the diversity of people and their cultures. I see the stunning architecture. I remember we, we went on our honeymoon to, to New York City, and being from a small town in Southern California, it's funny to call it a small town. It's 100,000 people, which I think is bigger than our county, but it felt really small to me back then. Um, there were only 12 Starbucks and no good local coffee shops. So I was like, I want to go to the city. And L.A. was too small. That was $4 million. We went to New York for our honeymoon. That was $10 million. And I remember stepping out of the subway and just looking up, and I had never seen buildings that high. They're towering over you. It can be daunting. It can also be invigorating. It could be thrilling. It could be uh, exhilarating to experience the energy, the rush. These examples of the brilliance of what the Creator God's creation is capable of doing with their minds and hands, with their engineering. This artistic excellence is like no other except that of God's own work, right? The churches in cities all over the world are phenomenal. They're outstanding. Some of them took a century to build. They're still standing. Some of these buildings are over 1,000, sometimes 2,000 years old or close to. They're phenomenal. But the reality is that we are God's work of art, and so by extension, we carry what God's legacy is carried through us, including all of our own handiwork. And so regarding this phrase, city on a hill, with that illustration in mind that Jesus is giving to us, whether it be a safe haven or a place of culture and architecture and creation, whatever it may be, a place of diversity, whatever it may be, some have taken this illustration and they've misapplied it in some ways. Often to temporary earthly nations, 
Um, some, some presidents of our own country have had the audacity to refer to our place as such, but Jesus wasn't speaking about one particular nation. Rather, he was talking about the nation of God, the city of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9, you, again, you all, this loaded, speaking to his apprentices, not one nation, state, or, or so forth, or race, or anything. He says, no, you, as one, my people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty work of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think there's a typo there. Yeah, mighty ask. Yeah, it's work. Stanley Haberbos wrote in his book, Resident Aliens, Life in the Christian Colony. Um, he says, we would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world. That the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar and that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. So who's the city on a hill? Not the crown, not communism, not the constitution, not this or any other temporary country on earth. No, the city on the hill is the kingdom amongst us. It's God dwelling in our midst and working in and through us in every nation state across the globe throughout all of human history. You think that he was saying this in the Roman Empire, again, one of the most powerful nations ever in human history. He was saying that then in their midst. Where's the Roman Empire now? It's gone. And I'm guessing generations from now, our nation might be gone or evolve into something and different nations will evolve and so forth. But what stays is the kingdom. That's what God is building. That's where we put our, 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 our efforts in, right? That's where we invest most, the kingdom of God amongst us. That's why Dallas Willard says churches are not the kingdom of God, but he says they are primarily an inevitable, sorry, they are primary and inevitable expressions. They're outposts and instrumentalities of the presence of the kingdom amongst us. We ourselves are not the sole kingdom but no, the kingdom is wherever people are gathering in the name of Jesus. And that covers the face of the earth. It has been spreading since that Acts 1-8, since that Matthew 28 passage, right? It started with, I would say, more than 12. They talk about the 12 being there, but there's probably a good 40, 50 people in that house. And it's spread. And we're in the billions now at this point. And it's outstood, it's withstood most nations that were around at that time. And it will withstand most. It will withstand, actually, all, sorry. So this begs the question, how do we actually do this? How do we actually be a city of God? And how do we be the salt of the earth? How, do we, how are we the light of the world? Um, it's a trick question, right? We said we already are those things. But what means does God shine his light through us? I think we said it earlier, and a few of you mentioned it. I think it's just simple cop-out it sounds like a cop-out answer, but it's not. It's simple. It's our love. It's simple and yet profound, our love. Jesus said in John 13, 35, this is how everyone will know. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Jesus is literally saying, 
by extension then, that they'll know that I'm real. They'll know, they'll experience a taste of the resurrection. They'll see something. There'll be a salty flavor that people will be like, what is that? Hmm, what'd you put in that? You know what I mean? You've had a good dish, and you're like, oh, what is that in there? That's kind of like that. What's in your life? What is that about them that makes them do this a little differently? They're a little bit of a different citizen of Dover or Philly or Sugar Creek. They just kind of live a little differently amongst us. What is that about them? They'll see, they'll know, they'll start catching on. And that's what happened in the passage that we looked at last week. And this is where the two kind of tie together. In summary, we are best living into our corporate identities of the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill, when we become and live as who we are now in Jesus, when we are loving one another as Jesus loved us. So how did he do it? We, we started with this summarizing last week. How did the early church show their neighbors Jesus? The way they learned, the way they fellowshiped, the way they feasted, and the way they prayed. And that's, that's for us. Just let's look at the way we learn as a church community. What does it show the world around us when we're willing to think through and submit all our ways to God? Our thinking, our affections, our living. That for us, the reality of the resurrection is so undeniable, and thus God's goodness is so undeniable that we submit everything to him. That even though every inclination in my heart and mind may be set in one way, that man, I'm willing to still say, as Jesus said, not our will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. Because we trust you, God. You're our author, you're our creator, our sustainer. What does that show the world? Well, we don't cling to power, but we actually lose it. We're willing to hold it open. Whatever little power we think we have, which we don't have much, what does that show the world when we're willing to hold it all before God and say, what do you want from it? What do you want from me? What do you want from my riches, my lives, my hearts, my marriage, my family, everything? What does this show the world? What message displays from the billboards and Times Squares of our lives? It shows them Jesus. Same thing, Sec second one, the way we fellowship as a church community. What does it show the world around us that we're willing to gather regularly and be vulnerable, be raw, be honest with one another? Man, when we, when we gather here and just put on faces on Wednesday nights or things like that, like, we're no different than somewhere else. No, what makes us different is when the Spirit humbles us and gives us courage and humility to be able to say, you know, you know what, this is who I am, this is all my dirty laundry, Help me. Or just, just hug me. Or just hear me. What does that show the world? That's different. Because most places, man, if, if you own what's really your darkest thoughts, your darkest feelings, whatever's going on, whatever you're dealing with, you might, nowadays, we're very afraid of getting canceled, right? Or thrown out or, or ex excommunicated. That's very prevalent in our culture more and more. But no, the church ought to be the one place where you can be who you are before Jesus, and yet at the same time know and be assured of who you are now in Jesus and who you are becoming in Jesus. And we ought to be able to do that together. What does that tell the world when we can be that way? When this is a safe haven, a safe place, a, a good community where people, man, it's not this like archaic place, but no, it's a living room. 
It's an inviting living room. It's a, it's a bonfire in someone's backyard on a summer night. It's just comfortable. It's at ease. It's home. What does that show the world? What does it show the world when people, when a group is willing to in love not sit idly by when their friend is doing something harmful or just not good for them, like growing a bad mustache, but instead gently correcting and walking with them? What does that show the world? Or even when they reject your correction, you still love them. It shows them Jesus, right? Third one, what does it show the world when we feast, the way we feast as a church community? And to recall, if you weren't here with us, the feasting we're saying is the communion, the communal meal. It is the breaking of bread, and pre- uh, the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine, doing this in remembrance of Jesus. What does it show the world around us when we attribute all we have to our provider God? And that even the things we do have We hold with a grain of salt knowing we can't take this out of this world. We can't take this past our end date. They're just shadows. They're pointing us to our maker. That whether we could retire today and never run out of monetary resources or we're simply looking for a bite to eat, when God provides, we thank God and we're grateful. What does that show our neighbors and what does it show the world around us? That whether our bank accounts are full or our stomachs are empty, we're still willing to give whatever we have to those in need, in particular, our enemies. It shows them Jesus. Because if you notice, Jesus did all these things, right? Jesus did that for us. The scriptures say that we were enemies to God, and yet he gave everything for us. The last one. God worked through them because they were a praying community, the way we pray as a church community. What does it show the world around us when we focus our attentions and affections, not on ourselves, but on God and by extension, others? When we desperately ask God to help us see all of creation the way he sees it and everyone in it, what does it show the world around us when we live our lives selflessly? It shows them Jesus. And to close, when when the early church lived this way, if you recall the end of last week's passage, what happened? In 247 of Acts, Luke recorded that God kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. May we, too, do so here and now in our communities. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship 
or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood.